0: How is everybody? Good, 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 good. Um, hey, I was going to talk about something. Uh, every year we do a fast at this church, and every year that fast falls during the Super Bowl. So, uh, and I just wanted to to maybe alleviate some guilt or, or pressure that you've had on yourself. I'm going to watch the Super Bowl tonight. And so, yeah, I know, right? And so, uh, yeah. Uh, so, I read this article the other day, and I think someone's wearing a, a Brady jersey somewhere back here. There was a guy on the front row. There's like eight of us in the whole church that are Patriots fans, but, um, or maybe more than eight. Uh, I read an article. There's only 16% of the population wants, wants the Patriots to win. Um, I'm one of those. And I remember last year, I received all these uh, not-so-nice messages, because last year I prayed for Tom Brady's arm on Sunday. And they say it was the most miraculous Super Bowl in football history. So, I don't want to take all the credit for the Patriots winning last year. But maybe a small percentage. Someone said, "Good Lord, I'll move on. I'll be done here in a second." I received so much heckling um, for that. But uh, anyway, so don't feel guilty. Have fun with your family tonight. Eat all the fruits and vegetables that you can, and uh, enjoy yourself. So. Uh, Anyways, okay, if you've never been to the church before, we are working through the book of Acts. We're a little bit more than halfway through it. If you are completely unfamiliar with this book of the Bible, let me, let me really, really quickly catch up to speed. So this book, of Bi- this book of the Bible is essentially about the birth of the church. This is where the church begins. And at this point in the story, it's the fifth book of the New Testament, by the way, if you have a Bible, at this point in the story, the church is about 16 years old. And we see in the first half of chapter 15 that we covered last week, the first rift has taken place within the church. Not people outside of the church causing division. Within the church, there was a divisive moment. What had happened is some guys from Jerusalem, there was two big heavy concentrations of Christians. There were Christians scattered all throughout the Middle East and in the Mediterranean, but there was two large concentrations of Christians. One primarily Jewish... In, uh, in, in Israel and in Jerusalem, right, and then one that was predominantly non-Jewish in Turkey in the city of Antioch. Well, two Jewish Christians went up north and they started teaching the new Christians that they had to obey Jewish customs or they would not be saved, okay? Paul and Barnabas found out about this and they said, well, that's not correct. We're gonna go down to Jerusalem and we're we're gonna get this right, right? We're gonna have a committee, a council. We're gonna all come together and we're gonna decide what we're going to do. So if you weren't here last week, we had the first council, the first hiccup in the Christian faith, if you will. And it was dealt with in the first part of chapter 15 of Acts. And the conclusion they came up with was essentially we're not going to force our Jewish customs on new Christians. And in return, new Christians, we would ask you to respect those who do follow the Jewish customs, okay? But we talked about last week that we can and we should love people, both Christian and non-Christian, that we don't agree with, that we should do our best to be peacemakers, to get along, to respect and and love other people. This week, I hope it's encouraging to you. Um, We're going to talk about this, and this is pulled from a verse in Romans chapter 8, that God works out all things for the good of those that love him. Even our mistakes, our temptations, the the bridges we've burned, the lemons we've produced in life, right? That God makes lemonade from the worst things that even we've done. If we are humble, if we will ask for forgiveness, and if we'll trust God, He works out all things for the good of those that love Him. Okay, that's what we're gonna talk about a little bit today. You should have a notes handout. We're in the 15th chapter of the fifth book of the New Testament. If you have your smartphone, uh, the UVersion app, again, we're working on an app right now. That should be done relatively soon. But as of now, the version app, which is free, has all the scripture. I'm using the Christian Standard Bible, um, if you want to use that or if you want to use a different translation. And uh, it should have all the notes on there as well, so we should be in good shape, okay? Well, I'm going to pray. We will dive into this, and you guys can eat nachos for days when you get home, or today. Uh, And um, it's going to be good, right? Okay. Lord Jesus, God, we love you. We thank you. We praise you, God. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity for all of us to come into this place today. Thank you, God, that we can laugh. And thank you, Lord, that we can dive into your word. And thank you, God, that we have good community and all the blessings you've put in our lives, God. Lord, I pray for anyone in this room who may not be a Christian, Lord, that they feel welcomed and comfortable today. I pray that they have an open mind to everything that they hear today, and that God maybe they take something good away um, from the lesson. Lord, for every Christian in this room, I pray, God, that you also give us an open mind, that we apply what we hear today, and Lord, that we live out the kind of lives that you want us to live. Lord, we pray that you bless every church, pray that you bless every nonprofit, Lord, especially my friend uh, David's God uh, mentor leadership nonprofit that we're highlighting this month. Pray, Lord, that you keep your hand on us, Lord, and that we can advance your kingdom, Lord. We love you. We thank you, we praise you in Jesus' name, and Lord bless Tom Brady's arm, amen. (laughs) Okay, all right, let's get into the Word, guys. No more messing around. Come on, let's... No, I'm just joking. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to read a little bit, and I will go back and I'll break it down. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to select men who were among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, both leading men among the brothers. They wrote, now this is the the, the creed, if you will, the, the, the letter that they're sending up. From the apostles and the elders, your brothers, to the brothers and sisters among the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some without our authorization went out from us and troubled you with their words and unsettled your hearts, we have unanimously decided to select men and send them to you, along with our dearly loved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we've sent Judas and Silas, who will personally report the same things by word of mouth. For it was, it was the Holy Spirit's decision and ours not to place further burdens on you beyond these requirements. That you abstain from food offered to idols, from blood, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. You will do well if you keep yourselves from these things. Farewell. Okay, so after coming to a conclusion, after coming to a conclusion on how to handle this rift between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, the church in Jerusalem, which was kind of like the mother church of it all, right? The church in Jerusalem decided to draft up this letter that I just read you, send it up north with Paul and Barnabas and two representatives from the church in Jerusalem. Now, this decision was made in in kind of a council setting. This is considered the first council of Christian history, right? The first time they got together, made a huge decision about the faith. This letter that was drafted up and this decision was discussed amongst a lot of people but eventually, the conclusion was laid down by the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, James, the brother of Jesus. Okay? So, Paul and Barnabas were heading back to Antioch, anyways. Why did they have to send representatives in a letter to go with them? Well, this protected the integrity of the entire church, all of Christianity. If Paul and Barnabas would have went back, they would have represented an imbalanced decision. What that means is they were from Antioch. So if they bring back a message that is favorable to the church in Antioch, well, that's their home church. So it didn't really look fair or balanced. So Judas and Silas, who are two elders of the Jerusalem church, went with them to make sure that no one thought anything had gone on that wasn't right. That the integrity of the church was preserved. Okay? Okay. So transparency is one of the ways we maintain integrity in the church. Paul and Barnabas were trustworthy. Everyone in Christianity would have known who Paul and Barnabas were. But it would have also been easy because they they were two that represented one side of the story. It would have been easy for people to accuse them that they were biased. So they made sure that they were transparent, wrote a letter, and sent up representatives with them. Now, what do we learn from that? We learn as Christians nowadays two very, very important things. The first thing is the Bible says that Christians are to live above reproach, which means we are to be wise that we live in such a way to where even if people do accuse us, it's very difficult for them to accuse us. One of the ways we do that in the church, this is just a very practical example, we have a rule here with people who work at the church that if there is a man and a woman that we don't, we don't end up in the same car together by ourselves going to Lowe's or Hobby Lobby or to Office Max or whatever the case may be. That's not because I'm worried about my staff. It's not because I don't trust them. But if you're driving down the road and you see me in the car with Giovanna or Sarah or Andy or someone else that works here, you know I'm a married man. Some of them are married women. There's this perception. And you could get it in your head, why is Corey in the car alone with this married woman, right? So we live above reproach. We don't do that. You can call that legalistic, I call it wise, right? So we just have these guidelines. We also are called in the Bible to avoid even the very appearance of evil. That means as a Christian, and if I'm driving through the square as your pastor, or maybe you don't consider me your pastor, but a brother in Christ or whatever the case may be, that if I'm driving through the square at 2.30 in the morning, which I'm not going to be, but if I'm driving through the square and I see you walking out of Whiskey Dicks at 2.30 in the morning, I'm going to assume that you're doing things that people do at Whiskey Dicks at 2.30 in the morning, if, that, drinking, right? Like, and probably drinking excessively. And so here's the thing, you can go to Whiskey Dicks and just be the greatest Christian in the world, theoretically, But if you're walking out of that bar at 2.30 in the morning, I'm just going to assume that you're doing things that are happening in there. So we should avoid even the appearance of doing something that is wrong. And one of the ways we do that is we are transparent. We are open about our lives. We're an open book. That's why at this church, if anyone ever says, man, you guys are just getting rich off this and no one knows where the money's going, of course you do. We show on the vision service where every dollar of the church goes because we are transparent. You're wondering where the money goes? here's where it goes. And if you don't know, you can go back and watch those sermons and see where every dollar is spent. That that keeps us out of trouble. We also protect the integrity of the church with humility. This letter that was sent to the church in Antioch contained an apology. Now, the people who wrote the letter didn't do anything wrong, but the church that they were in charge of, some people from that church did. So the letter showed a couple of things. One, It showed that the church at large did not condone what these two rogue people went up in Antioch and and kind of spoke out of turn. We don't condone that. The other thing it shows is this, is that the leaders of the church in Jerusalem were humble. They acknowledged that their church, not them personally, but someone in their church had done something wrong, and get this, they apologized for it. It's just like if someone who works here did something, right? Inappropriate. I may not have personally done it, but they represent the experience, so I need to say, hey, listen, I don't agree with what they did, but I am sorry for the trouble that they've caused you. We will right this wrong, right? But to do that, guys, takes humility. takes humility. So the letter also acknowledged that these new requirements for new Christians may be burdensome. Not that they're wrong, but there's going to be a life change. And so this is good for them, and it's good for the church as a whole. But I think sometimes, guys, we need to be empathetic. I don't know if you guys remember when you first became a Christian. I became a Christian right before my 23rd birthday, about a month before my 23rd birthday. It was a dramatic shift for my wife and I. It was a big change for us. Like We hung out at certain places that we shouldn't have. We did a lot of things we shouldn't have done, and and I was drinking and smoking and doing all kinds of stuff that I shouldn't have been doing at that time. And so it was a big change for me. To come into the Christian faith and that takes a little bit of time but if you're a new Christian in here or if you're an old Christian in here and sometimes you just have a hard time adapting right we need to learn that God loves us and that God sets parameters and rules not because he wants us to live a bad life but because he wants us to live a good life the reason why there's parameters on things like sex is because God doesn't want you to have an STD He doesn't want you to have a pregnancy until it's the time that you want to have a pregnancy. He wants to protect your relationships. That's why there's boundaries to sex and sexuality. We also need to understand, and this is hard sometimes, that good church leadership also wants what's best for you. I put good church leadership because unfortunately there are church leadership that's not good. But if you consider me pastor, if you trust me, if I tell you something, know that I'm not, look, I'm not looking to hurt you or do anything wrong by you. I want the best for you. I am, I, and I'm not, I don't mean this with, with any arrogance, but I am God's chosen person for this church to, to, to help you, to look out for you, and I want what's best for you. Now, it gets into some uncomfortable waters and some, some kind of dangerous waters sometimes, because sometimes there are changes in our Christian walk that are not told in the Bible for us to do. What I mean is sometimes you will have personal convictions by God. They're not biblical things, but you will have personal convictions, and you are to listen to those. For instance, here's here's probably the easiest one, most practical one. I tell this church all the time, there is nothing wrong with you drinking alcohol. If you have a beer tonight with your pizza when you're watching the game, there is nothing sinful about that. Nothing wrong with having a glass of wine with your wife. Listen, God has convicted me and my wife that we should not drink alcohol. The reason why is because I come from a past of addiction. So God says, Corey, you don't need this in your life, right? It's not something that you need, it's not something your wife needs. And so I need to listen to that. Now we need to be careful when it comes to personal conviction, because I cannot impose my personal convictions on you if they're not biblical. That's how cults start, right? And until this church hit about 3,000 people, everyone thought we were a cult, but I think now because we're big enough, they've accepted that we're not, right? So anyways, the balance in that is this. We must have trustworthy leadership, leading churches, right, that knows that sometimes pastors are gonna tell you to do things. Well, it doesn't say that I can't do that in the Bible. I know that, but as your pastor, let me help you. Let me shepherd you in this way. So first, we must have trustworthy leadership. Secondly, we must have humble, God-fearing, and church-honoring congregants. If you come to, and guys, I say this with all humility, If you come to this church and block off an hour of my time and come in there and say, Pastor, what do I do about this? And I say this, and you say, no, that's dumb. Then why do you come here, right? Why is this your church if you don't even trust me to help you? There's a breakdown there. I need to be trustworthy. You need to be humble, and you need to be willing to to maybe listen every once in a while to what I have to say. And it goes beyond just salvation, The letter to the church in Antioch mentions the major things that these Gentiles, non-Jews, need to do to be righteous Christians. But the core of it goes beyond just being saved. We talked about it last week. The core of this letter is respect. It's about respect for each other. It's about respect for church authority. He even says at the end of this letter, you'll do well if you follow these things. So here's the thing, guys. We have to honor each other because the Bible says that we are to outdo each other with honor. We are to submit to authority, and that's not just Christian authority. This is difficult for us. I don't care who you voted for for the last two presidents. For some reason, Barack Obama and Donald Trump have been some of the most polarizing men that's ever led our country. Whether you like them, don't like them, whatever the case may be. But it is not very Christ-like to throw a 666 on the forehead of one of your leaders of your nations and constantly talk bad about these people. Romans 13 says every leader that is in office is there not because you voted for them, but because God put them there. So whether you agree with our last president or our current president is irrelevant. There is a respect issue that Christ has called us to follow. That we are to honor and respect people in authority. And here's the thing on a personal note. If you and I do not respect church authority and authority in general, and if we don't honor and respect each other, God will never put you in a place of greatness. Mark my words. Mark my words. We will never do anything great for the kingdom of God until we start to honor, respect, authority, okay? So why didn't Paul ever mention this? Paul wrote about 65% of our New Testament, and he never mentions this letter. Why? It's pretty important. Well, he kind of does mention the principles of this letter. In 1 Corinthians, I think in six different chapters, he mentions the principles of this letter, but he never directly cites it. The reason for that probably is, is it doesn't really match up with the focus of his epistles. That's all his contributions to the Bible. They were about the broader sense of salvation, and this was kind of a cultural issue that was being talked about here. Okay, just a little side note. So they were sent off and they went down to Antioch. And after gathering the assembly, they delivered the letter. When they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Both Judas and Silas, who were also prophets themselves, encouraged the brothers and sisters and strengthened them with a long message. That's what I'm going to do sometime on the weekend. I'm just going to encourage you guys with like a super long sermon. After spending some time there, they were sent back in peace by the brothers and sisters to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas, along with many others, remained in Antioch teaching and proclaiming the word of the Lord. So the letter to the church in Antioch wouldn't have been heard just by people in Antioch. People from the east, which would be modern day Syria, they would have been there. People from the western side of Turkey would have been there. A lot of people would have been there. And when all of the non-Jewish Christians heard this, they were super happy, right? We're going to be accepted into the family of Christians, they're not going to impose these cultural standards on us. This is awesome, they were extremely happy about this. And it says that these elders from Jerusalem, when they saw this and were in it, they were also extremely happy about it. So Judas and Silas stayed there for a while, and they taught and they got involved and they participated. And it's said that these two men had the gift of prophecy. Now, we also have to be careful about this. The gift of prophecy is what, the, is what is called a motivational gift. If you've never heard of the gift of prophecy, it's one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And essentially what this gift does is it gives men and women the ability, God kind of downloads something to them, to communicate to other people. And what they are to communicate to other people is, hey, I believe God wants you to do this. Or I believe God is telling me that you need to stop doing this or basically gives them some direction, but God kind of channels through people and talks to others and it motivates them to do something. Now, Paul said this is the greatest of gifts in in 1 Corinthians, but we need to be exceptionally careful with this gift. So don't just, every time someone walks up to you and says, hey, God told me that you're supposed to sell everything and move to Africa next week, right? Right? If someone does that, maybe you should kind of step back a little bit and say, okay, you know, I hear you. I'm going to pray about that. I'm going to see if God also tells me that and confirms that. I'm going to talk to my wife before I put the house up for sale, right? Like, we're going to communicate. You know what the Bible says, how you, how you know if someone's a real prophet or not? If what they say comes true. That's what the Bible says. How do you know if someone's legitimately, like, legitimately, legitimately a prophet? How do you know if someone has an English degree? Anyways that if what they say takes place. So we should pray about this, we should, the Bible says, test all things before we just take people's word. Because quite frankly, there's some nutcases running around that claim to be prophets and we shouldn't listen to them, right? So it says when Judas and Silas' time was done in Antioch, they were sent back to Jerusalem in peace. So what that shows is this, there was this slight rift that had taken place between the Christians in the south, the Christians in the north, but it had been fixed. This conflict had been resolved. And here's the thing about conflict resolution. Jesus actually gets very descriptive about conflict resolution in the book of Matthew. He talks about it. Um, Solomon talks about conflict resolution. James, the brother of Jesus, talks about resolving conflicts. And Paul talks about it multiple times. Virtually throughout the entire Bible, it alludes that we need to resolve conflicts with people. Now, the problem with that is it doesn't always succeed. In fact, at this time, it's about AD 49, AD 50. By AD 100, these two different groups that had now just like, they're hugging each other and loving each other, right? Within the next 50 years, they would worship completely apart from each other. Not only that, Paul was a polarizing figure. The more I study Paul, and I don't mean this to be blasphemous, and one day I'm going to meet him in heaven, and I'll, you know, we'll you know, we'll be cool. But anyways, the more I read about Paul, the more I'm like, I don't know if I would like to have coffee with Paul, right? I believe in everything he wrote. I believe in all of his contributions to the Bible. Very important, but he was a polarizing character. In our, our modern day and age, Paul is the most polarizing contributor of the Bible. Let me tell you why. The only person that, that very blatantly wrote about human sexuality in the New Testament was Paul. He wrote about it three times. And so there's a lot of people in modern day culture, because culture doesn't always like what the Bible has to say, where they have removed Paul from the New Testament. They don't work, they don't, they don't, they don't read the things, the works of Paul. Now in case you're wondering why that's a big deal, A, it takes away about 65 to 75, uh, 70% of your New Testament is gone if you remove the writings of Paul. Now, let me tell you why that's also a big deal. In one of Peter's epistles, one of his contributions, Peter, Peter says we are to affirm and we believe in everything that Paul has said. Peter says, follow Paul's lead, follow what he has written. So if we take Paul out, then we got to take Peter out because Peter affirms Paul. Now, if we take Peter out, look at the slippery slope we get on. Jesus handed the keys of the kingdom to Peter. So if you remove Peter, then you have to remove Jesus. Then you have nothing left. So when we start picking and choosing what we like in the word of God, you have to either accept this thing in its totality or scrap it in its totality. It doesn't bend to fit you. As Jesus said, you're either for me or you're against me. There's no partial allegiance to Christ. And so we also see this. James, who made a genuine effort, he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He made every effort to bring these two churches together, these two different groups of people. And it worked for a while, but unfortunately, it ultimately did not work. So here's the thing. Can we ensure that we're always going to be unified? No. Do we need to constantly be working towards unity? Absolutely. We always need to be working towards unity. Now, if you have a Bible with you, look at this. If you're reading, it goes from verse 33 to 35. There's no verse 34. Does anyone notice that when we were reading it earlier? No verse 34. Now, the reason why that's important, and this may seem like a minor thing to you, but I wanted to point it out. Some people ask the question, well, how do you know that your Bible has been translated well? How do you know that the integrity of the word has transcended through all these generations? There is so much care taking and translating the the, the Word of God, there's been so much care in making sure the Hebrew and Greek has translated over to our English language in the most just perfect way, that when they found later manuscripts, the Dead Sea Scrolls, of the book of Acts, there was verse 35 that it looked like a scribe had added in that Silas remained in Antioch. It's a small detail. It's kind of irrelevant. But they pulled it out because they didn't believe it worked perfectly with the narrative of the story. That shouldn't make you question the integrity of the Bible. It should strengthen that they have taken amazing care to preserve the integrity of the Word of God, and we can rest assured that this book is very, very solid. Okay? After some time had passed... Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the brothers and sisters in every town where we have preached the word of the Lord, and let's see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take along John Mark, but Paul insisted that they should not take along this man who had deserted them in Pamphylia and not gone on with them to the work. They had such a sharp disagreement "...that they parted company, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed off to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed after being commended by the brothers and sisters to the grace of the Lord. He traveled through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches." So what in the heck has happened here? Now we see a rift between the two men that were responsible for spreading the gospel to all of the Gentiles. So roughly a year and a half had passed since the council at the beginning of chapter 15. It's, it's roughly about A.D. 50. And verse 36 marks another turning point. Now Paul is about to go on his second missionary journey. So his motivation was, was pretty simple. Hey, let's go back to all the Christians and all the churches that we started in our first trip, and let's just make sure they're doing okay. Let's encourage them, let's teach them, let's see if they need anything. Sounds great, Barnabas is like, Paul, that is an awesome idea. Let me go get Mark and he'll go with us. Oh, and now here comes the friction. Remember, if you weren't here, Mark actually left with these two guys on the first missionary trip and he bailed. We have no idea why. All we know is there was some kind of conflict between Paul and Mark and Mark took off and he returned home. And Luke doesn't give us any, Luke wrote the book of Acts. He doesn't tell us why this happened, But we see that Paul was very adamant that this guy is not going to go with us. He is not going to go. And this disagreement over Mark between two very dear friends became a blow up. The idea of Mark coming along put a wedge between two guys who had traveled over a great part of the world together, 1,400 miles that they traveled on land and sea with each other. Now, again, we don't know. Was Mark maybe a little cocky and unrepentant towards Paul? Or was maybe Paul thinking that he was going to water down the the message of of the Jewish council? He doesn't, we don't know. We have no idea. What we do know is this, and I hope you find this interesting. It looks like this awful thing has happened, but God was actually working out something better for his kingdom. They intended to take one group and to start to head back through Cyprus and up through western Turkey and head back. They were going to take one group. God wanted more geography to be covered, so a situation happened to where it wasn't going to be just one group going out. There was going to be two groups going out. One was going to go west towards Cyprus. One was going to go east towards Syria. They would cover twice as much area in the same amount of time. Not just that. They would actually be a more balanced team because Paul was from Antioch, Silas was from Jerusalem, so you'd have two different kind of representations of the two different groups of Christians traveling together, spreading the gospel. It just made so much sense. So look what God was doing, what man intended to do one way. God said, no, I'm going to do it twice as big. I'm going to do more. Does that mean that God designs fallouts between people? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. So here's the thing God always wants reconciliation between Christians. That's what he hopes for reconciliation. God is a God of reconciliation. He even wants us to be reconciled with non Christians. But if God's plan is being hindered, he will allow things to happen to make sure that his will goes forward. Here's the other side of that God is sovereign, right? We know that God is sovereign but we also have a choice in the matter. We are in a culture right now to where it is never our fault. It's always someone else's fault, right? Here's how arrogant we are as humans, right? You ever hear people say, man, the devil's just been after me. Okay, here's the thing about the devil. The devil is not omnipresent, which means Satan cannot be at all places at all times. So how arrogant is it of us, of the eight billion people on planet Earth that that, that Satan is focused just on Cory Trimble, right? Boy, Satan is just running after me because I'm the most important person on planet Earth. Not the case. So whenever we're always blaming things on the devil or whenever we're just blaming things on God, God, why did this relationship fall apart? And God's like, because sometimes you're a butt, you know? I mean, like, that's why it falls apart. It wasn't God's fault. Sometimes we're jerks. That's us. And... (laughs) My five-year-old was sitting in service last night, and I said that, and she just started cackling. I mean, because I said "butt" in front of all these people, right? She just thought that was hilarious. But here's the thing. Sometimes it's just us. Again, I'll pray for people sometimes, and they're just like, man, the devil keeps making me look at porn. I'm like, really? Satan comes into your house, opens up your laptop, types in that, and says, have you seen this? Right? (laughs) Satan doesn't do that. You do that. That's your flesh. That's your problem, right? And so sometimes it's not God. Sometimes it's not Satan. Sometimes it's just us. And so we've learned today, in case you didn't know, (laughs) that humans make mistakes. Look at the people that we've studied in the Bible just this week. We see that Paul was polarizing. Some people just didn't like Paul, right? Maybe he was a know it all. Maybe, maybe just he wasn't good with, with interacting with people sometimes. But Paul Paul was polarizing. We see that Mark was flaky sometimes. He bailed out on people. We see that people argue, even friends argue, that there were divisions. Now, listen, guys, this shouldn't discourage you. This should encourage you. Paul contributed 65 to 70 percent of the New Testament. Almost all of our Christian doctrines and beliefs came through the writings of Paul. If God can work with a guy like that, he can work with a guy like me. He can work with a woman like you. When we see that the men and women of the Bible had fallacies, just like we did, right? That we see that God can also do amazing things with us. It also shows us that we must be dependent on his grace and mercy because we're going to make mistakes. That should encourage us. We also learn that God is sovereign. This should also encourage us. Though we make mistakes, God is in control. Now, just because God is in control, does that give us an excuse not to do anything? Of course not. Oh man, I haven't paid my bills in eight months because I'm not working, but hey, God's in control. You're, You're an idiot, right? Like, Go get a job and pay your bills. And so God has always called mankind to work, just saying God's in control. Again, God's not gonna show up and be like, hey, I got these applications for you. Can you fill these out and I'll take them back to the the places? No, God is in control, but that means that if we will trust him, if we will work hard to build a relationship with him, we can ultimately lay back and say, regardless of what happens, come hell or high water, God, you got it. God, you got it. You are in control. And there should be a peace that washes over us a comfort that should come to us to know that nothing happens outside of God's knowledge. You ever think that your sins shock God? They don't. Before you were even knit together in your mother's womb, the Bible says, God knew everything about you. Every mistake you were gonna make, every dumb move you were gonna do, every wonderful thing you were ever gonna do, God knew nothing happens outside of God's knowledge. Nothing happens outside of his control. And that should bring us some comfort. That should bring us some peace. Guys, every time I crack open my Bible and go to Revelation 21 and 22, the same ending always takes place. No matter how crazy the world gets, no matter how nutty humanity is, I know at the end of the day, Christ is still king and he wins. So occasionally occasionally we need to go back to the end of our Bible whenever we're just like, oh, what is gonna happen? You know, everything's falling apart, North Korea, all this stuff. You know, like we're freaking out that we need to go back to the end of our Bible and say, Christ still wins. God still wins. And if I'm with him, I win too. We're gonna make it. We're gonna be okay. Even if all hell comes against us, Jesus Christ completely obliterates evil with just opening his mouth in the book of Revelation. It's gonna be okay, he's in control. The last thing is this. God works out all things, Romans chapter eight, for the good of those that love him. Through hard times, through broken relationships, through temptations, through trials, even through the mistakes we have made, even through the things that we have done, it is completely my fault. Even through those things. God will work those things out for our benefit if, 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 if we will be humble enough to say, God, I was wrong. God, I am sorry. If we will be humble enough to go to those that we've wronged, listen for a second. It's easy to go to God and say, God, I'm so sorry. It takes us really swallowing some pride to go from people we've wronged and say, hey, look, I was wrong. I was wrong forgive me. Do you know Jesus talks about that? He says, don't bring your repentance to me until you've fixed the problems between yourselves. Jesus says that in the book of Matthew. It is very important that we humble ourselves and go to people that we may have offended or not been right to and said, I was wrong. I was wrong. But if we will go and be humble enough to repent to God and others, if we will be willing to submit to Jesus and his will, and if we will genuinely love Jesus... How do you know if you genuinely love Jesus? Jesus said in John chapter 14, I will know that you love me if you keep my commandments. So if we say we love Jesus, but we do not keep the commandments of the Bible, we do not love him. At least that's according to Jesus. So if we will be humble, if we will be willing to submit, and if we will genuinely follow Christ, even the mistakes we've made will be turned around in such a way to where God will receive honor and you will benefit from them. God will take all the things in your life, and he will work those things out for the good of those that love him. And listen, I hope you're paying attention today because I think someone needs to hear this. The last thing, God loves you despite you. God loves you in spite of what you've done. God loves you in spite of what you're going to do. Do you find it fascinating that all the blessings in your life came to you even though God knew you were going to do things to rebel against him? Even though God knew you were going to do things to dishonor him, to hurt people, God still blesses us. Does it blow your mind to think that the creator of the universe came down to earth, died for us knowing how many people would reject him? Knowing all the stupid, evil things that you and I would do, he still willingly climbed on a tree and hung for nine hours. God loves you despite you. Well, Corey, you don't know what I've done. I don't, but God does, and he loves you despite you. Through all your faults, all your insecurities, all the things that have been done to you, all the things that you've done to others. And this should bring us to a place of humility. That we should fall on our faces and say, God, forgive me. God, I'm willing to submit. God, I love you. And if we will do that, we will be taken care of. Not just in this life. This isn't a prosperity gospel. That's garbage. This is not a prosperity thing. What I'm talking about is we will ultimately be taken care of for eternity. Jesus Christ looked at his followers And he said, listen, I'm going to prepare a place that has many mansions. And if it weren't true, I wouldn't have said it. That's what Jesus said. So if you, again, want to go back to the book of Revelation, chapters 21 and 22, and if you want to read about the grandeur and the glory and the beauty of heaven, if you want to read about the streets of gold, if you want to read about the city that comes down the new Jerusalem on a brand new earth, with 12 pearly gates and the foundations of all kinds of beautiful stones, and then when you go inside the interior of the city, the river of life that leads to the tree of life. But it says there's no sun. Why? Because the glory and radiance of Jesus Christ the King lights up everything forever. So God has prepared this place, listen, God has prepared this place for you and I, that if we will just humble ourselves, And love him and submit to him that he doesn't want to just take care of you now. He wants to take care of you and love you and be in community with you forever in a place where there will be no more abuse. There will be no more kids that get cancer. There will be no more war or evil dictators. There will be no more jealousy or rivalry or gossip or tearing people down. Those things, as the Bible says, the former things will have passed away. They will be gone. And Jesus says, I have to go to prepare a place for you. If it weren't true, I wouldn't say it. God loves you despite you. God loves you in all your brokenness, and he's saying, please, let me take that and fix it. Please. If you will just lay your life down at Christ's feet, he will work out for the good of those, all that love him. He will work out all things for the good of of those that love him. I give you my word. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Listen, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, let let me be a dork here for a second. Several years ago, a group of scientists pointed the Hubble telescope into a little black circle in the universe. There was nothing there. Typically with telescopes, you pointed at things that you want to look at, they pointed it into a black void. They took the longest exposure that a camera had ever taken. And what they saw when they got the results back from this black void is they saw millions of galaxies. What they can assume by this shot from the Hubble telescope is that there's somewhere in the neighborhood of, listen to this, 200 billion galaxies. 200 billion galaxies. That's a number of stars that is, it's something like 40 billion trillion. It's just astronomical, the number. So we have a God that has created a universe that is so large that our minds can't even wrap our mind, we can't, our, our minds can't even, can't even begin to comprehend how big this is. And in this huge, vast universe that God has created, Not only does he know who you are, he knows every hair on your head. And God, the God that created 200 billion galaxies, climbed up willingly on a cross to die for your sins. I have no greater message to tell you than that. That is the greatest thing that's ever been written, ever been recorded That God so loved the world that he gave his only son that we shall not die, but have everlasting life. Because he loves us. He loves you. Some of you in this room maybe need to humble yourselves. Maybe you need to ask for God's forgiveness. Maybe you need to seek the forgiveness of others. Some of you in this room need to be willing to submit your whole lives to Christ. Not partial, not 90%, everything. Some of you need to ask yourselves, I say I love Jesus, but do I genuinely love Jesus? Do I follow his commandments? If you're in this room and you're not a Christian, maybe you come from a fatherless home, maybe you don't have a friend in the world, the Bible says that Jesus Christ, that he's, a, he's our heavenly father, and it says that he's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. If you came in here and you're not a believer, I just ask that you have an open mind. Keep digging and you'll find answers. If you're in here and you're a believer and maybe you've been disconnected, maybe you have forgotten the fact that God loves you ridiculously, I hope you reconnect with him. I hope you feel the love of God. I hope you're filled with his Holy Spirit. If you need prayer for anything, there's men and women at the front that love to pray for you. If you want to take communion all the way around you where the tables have lamps, that represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ who died on us for the cross, or or died on the cross for us. All we ask is that you ask Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins and you can take communion. Lord Jesus, God, I pray blessings over everyone in this room. Remind us, Father, that we have done nothing to earn your love, but that's what makes your love so great is you give it to us freely. You love us, Father, despite all the things we've done, despite all the things we'll do. You love us. Remind us of that, God. Forgive us, and Lord, let us seek forgiveness from those we've offended. Lord God, help us and make us strong. We love you. We thank you. We praise you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys to death. You're welcome to help yourself to communion, prayer, and uh, make yourself at home. Thank you, guys.